Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Thank you for joining me for yet another episode of Misfits and Rejects, episode 96. As many of you know, I am heading back out on the road, heading towards Thailand via South Carolina and Europe, spending a few days along the way, just enjoying myself with people I love and doing a cool adventure with my father. We're riding our bikes from Dresden or from Prague. Czech Republic to Dresden, Germany. So my dad's almost 80 years old and we're getting bikes and him and I are going to go out there and just cut it up, have fun and, and have a little adventure together, which I'm really excited about. You know, I've been working hard the last three months. I had to leave Nicaragua early, um, just because of the political situation down there. Not that I feel that it's unsafe, but unfortunately it did dry up a lot of tourism. Tourists aren't coming anymore and it made it very difficult for me to sustain my life down there. So I'm going further afield to network, meet more people who are trying to design their lives in a similar way that I am. So I'm heading to Thailand, the Mecca of digital nomadry, if you will, where people sit and work on their computers, make money in a beautiful place. And I hope to soak up some of their energy, some of their insights that will help me continue to design and shape my life in the way that I want, which is, you know, to be location independent from work and just keep traveling, living, coming home when I want to and having the cash flow to do it all through my online ventures. And so with that said, I will be trying to capture tons of great content for you on the road, but this episode specifically is going back into the past, episode 22 with Rusty Labouchang. He's been on my mind a lot lately, and I find that his story is just something that is really relevant in some ways to where I'm at in life, not in any way that I'm experiencing life. You know, for those of you who haven't heard Rusty's story, Rusty spent 10 years in a prison in Zimbabwe for a crime he didn't commit, a murder to be exact. He got out after 10 years. He had the people who sent him to prison go to prison for wrongly accusing him. And they're, they're spending time in jail now. And now he just travels and speaks and tries to motivate and inspire people through his story and his mindset. And I find myself these days really thinking about mindset and where I've gotten myself in life and where I want to get to in life and how it all ties together and some of the bad habits that have been creeping up into my life, you know, of late. And I think that his story is again something that I reflect on somebody and something that I am really inspired by. And I'll just kind of touch upon that in this intro to give you a little bit of insight on where my head's at and what I've drawn from his story and then let you go and listen to his story. So this, this intro is going to be a little bit longer, so bear with me. But I think that it's really important to just kind of bring out my side of the story in that, you know, the last three months I've had to come back to California. I've had to work really hard, save as much money as possible, and then hit the road again, again, trying to accomplish my dreams, hopes, and goals. And for a lot of people in this world, that's not a possibility. Whether you are stuck in prison like Rusty was, or maybe even stuck in a, a country where you're oppressed and you can't strive for your hopes and dreams. And there's a lot of places out there like that that still exist today. And so it is really humbling and gives, I think, people and myself a lot of perspective when you do get to hear these stories. And, and I sit there sometimes very frustrated at myself for not being as grateful as I feel like I should be. And that gratitude that might be lacking some days where I'm like, oh, this sucks. This is so boring. Like, oh, I just, I really wish I was back in Nicaragua with my friends and surfing and doing what I really want to do. Or, oh, I'm just pissing, moaning and whining. And it's just so useless at the end of the day when this is really what I needed to do. I needed to come back. I needed to grind. I needed to do a job that I wasn't super excited about. I, I was surrounded by people I love, though. So big shout out to all those wonderful people I get to work with day in and day out. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things that's been kind of haunting me. And I wanted to t talk a little bit more about that and things that I've experienced through striving to understand that side of myself more. You know, I've really dug deep in myself. I spent many years in therapy as a young man, um, just really searching to really understand my thought processes, how I perceive life and coming to some interesting conclusions. You know, some of the, the blueprint of my makeup, you know, maybe has me more drawn to 
a negative perception of things. Maybe that was my environment, you know, who knows, but I definitely found myself throughout my earlier years, more drawn to perceiving life in a negative way. And through a lot of work and a lot of mental practices, I can say I have moved past that. And a lot of the way I perceive the world now is with a lot of joy and a lot of consideration and a lot of enthusiasm for what's out there and what could be discovered in the unknown, you know, but it took work. It took a lot of work and it took work of learning the different methods of other people. I have mentioned in past episodes that I have drawn a lot upon Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle wrote the power of now he wrote the new earth and he is somebody who his words, as I read them across the page, really jumped out at me. I could feel what he was saying in every cell of my body. I could relate. And I started practicing what he talked about. You know, we hear it a lot in Eastern philosophy. You know, the present moment is the most important moment that you have. It's the only moment that you have. The past is something that has already happened. The future is unknown. So all you really have is the moment in which you are standing in at that second. And all you can do is try to embrace it for what it is and trying to change it sometimes. For example, like Rusty Labouchain being stuck in prison for 10 years, he wasn't going to be able to change it. And so as you go through his story, you can really hear how big of a struggle it was for him mentally for the first three or four years. And now imagine that. Imagine sitting in a cell with I think it's like 30, 40, or 100 other people, I forget, in a cramped cell, bored out of your mind, and all you have is your thoughts. And many of his thoughts for the first three, four years were thoughts of revenge, were thoughts of what he was going to do to these people when he got out, and how he was going to punish them in some way, shape, or form, and show the world that he had been wrongly accused. And his mind was so preoccupied with that sort of revenge and getting back. And it, imagine sitting there for three or four years and that's all you think about 24 seven and how this is relatable to me is like, I can relate to that reoccurring thought process in moments of boredom, in moments of doing something that I really don't want to be doing. My mind is just chattering saying, get out of here. This sucks. Get out of here. This sucks. Get out of here. This sucks. This isn't for you. You can, you can do better. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. And it's just not productive at all. It doesn't help in any way, shape or form, except for make me more miserable in that moment. And as you hear Rusty's stories, you can hear how that moment came when that realization struck him. Now, I hope and wish that I can come to that same conclusion without having to go to prison. And I feel like through the practice that I have taken on through practicing, trying to stay present through walking meditation, I'm not much of, of a person. I'm not somebody who likes to sit still and meditate. That's not for me. However, I do feel like I get a benefit from just always being the observer of my mind and being very cognizant that when that my mind starts to chatter in a negative way or movie make, you know, mental movies it makes about, you know, the daydreams I have or the dreams I have about the future or that little chatter of like what it could be. I bring myself back to the moment, I take a breath, and I continue on with a task at hand. And for me, the last three months, a lot of those tasks were lifting boxes, hanging clothes, you know, things that aren't, aren't very, I'm not very passionate about. However, when I would do that, a lot of that frustration and anxiety would subside, and I could get through another few minutes at peace. And then it would come back, and I'd have to bring myself back to present, and then I'd have another few minutes of peace. And this was my daily practice for the last three months. And I can see how it works. And with more practice, it will hopefully become more incorporated into my being, into my daily, to where I don't have to constantly remind myself to stay present, stay focused, breathe, and just accept the task for what it is. I'm gonna stand there for the next eight hours hanging close. And that's the way it is. There's nothing I can do about it in the moment. I mean, of course, I have choices. I live in the United States. I have a lot of freedoms that many other people don't have. But for me and from where I'm at and for the things and goals that I've set for myself, this is definitely the best option for me. And I'm grateful for that option, even though my mind tells me at moments, this sucks. 
And so again, I've been thinking about Rusty a lot. Rusty has a book out. It's called Beating Chains. I highly recommend you check it out. He's got an audio book. I will put it in the link below. You can. He's got a little um, Vimeo video as well. He goes around the world. He speaks with this group called the Unique Speakers Bureau, telling his story, trying to really give people perspective on what he experienced and how he found essentially freedom, freedom from himself, freedom from that chatter, from that complaining, that bitching, that moaning, like, oh, poor me. You know, I've been in prison now five years for a crime I didn't commit, which he did suffer from for the first three to four years. And then he was able to let that go. And the amount of peace that he found from that understanding, you know, he wasn't ever going to be free because he had a 15 year sentence, but within his day to day, he started seeing the positive things within a very shitty environment. And that to me is profound. That to me is beautiful. That is something I would like to experience more often on a daily basis. So that's why I read such books like The Power of Now. I'm reading Byron Katie's The Work and really just trying to hone in on some different techniques, some different practices that I can relate to, that I can implement in my daily routine, my daily life. That will continue to just help me get to that mentally more peaceful place that I've experienced before. You know, I experience it when I'm surfing. I experience it in other daily activities that I, I do do. And so I do know what it feels like and I'd really like to get there in a more consistent way. And I really hope Rusty's story inspires you as well to, again, take a look at your life situation. Some of you are sitting in a situation that you don't really have a choice right now to get out of. You might be listening to this in prison. I don't know. Or you just might be in a situation that right now you know you're not going to get out of. You can't walk away from whatever it may be. And so... It might not be something you ever fall in love with or you even like, but you can get through these days, these moments, these seconds, these fractions of a second with less anxiety, less frustration, less mental suffering by practicing what Rusty talks about, practicing being present, practicing being the observer of your thoughts and acknowledging that a lot of what you think isn't reality isn't your reality in the moment and so with that said please sit back relax and enjoy rusty labusheng's story about being stuck in a zimbabwe prison for 10 years welcome to misfits and rejects a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates travelers entrepreneurs and adventurers i'm your host chapin cruder enjoy i didn't fit in america with cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Goddamn. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I have the honor and pleasure of speaking to a gentleman in Zimbabwe, Rusty Labusheng. A gentleman who was recommended to me by one of my fans and followers who I'm honored and so thankful that she reached out to uh, help me find this gentleman who, with a little bit of research I found out, has one of the most profound, incredible stories that up until this point I've heard and actually haven't heard yet. That's why we have him on the show. So with that said, I'd like to welcome Rusty to the show. Re welcome, Rusty. Thanks, Chapman. Oh, man, I'm so happy to have you. Like I said, just a little bit of research instantly turned me on, not just because of the experiences that you've had, but because yeah. of your outlook on life. And I'd kind of like to get the really the whole picture of you, your life, and then where you're at today. So maybe you okay. can just take us back to a little bit of your upbringing and, and where you were before this incident happened. And we're going to tell the audience in a second what this incident was, but I'd like to kind of hold them in suspense for a second. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I'm fourth generation Zimbabwean. Um, from a cattle ranching background, and I still live in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe today, and grew up um, humbly, um, lost my dad when I was 12, so we battled all the way through. I have uh, two sisters and a brother. My mom struggled to put us through school and everything, and then I got into the safari industry when I left school and became very successful. I had five fully operating safari 
camps, uh, fishing resort on Lake Kariba. Um, I was flying my own aircraft. Um, before I, I became successful, just after school, I played rugby for Zimbabwe, for, for the national side, which was quite an achievement. And uh, in 2000, during the, the land invasion turmoil in Zimbabwe, um, I had a dispute at my fishing resort on Lake Kariba with some uh, fishing cooperative that were poaching in the area, fish poaching. And I was on a, it was December 2000, and I, I was on a fishing trip with a bunch of mates of mine. And later one afternoon, one of my mates and I decided to go fishing for tiger fish in the lake and left the other guys bream fishing in the river, just one of the estuaries that flow into the lake. And on our way back, we noticed two poachers, fish poachers in a steel boat, who immediately upon seeing us started paddling hastily for the shore in, a, in an effort to get away from us. And knowing they were known poachers, I drove my boat towards them to scare them off. And the wake of my boat tilted their boat, causing them to jump out into the water, which was about one and a half meters deep. They were about three meters from the shore. And they scrambled onto the shore, and then my friend and I watched as they ran away into the bush. The following day, the police arrived, and we were accused of drowning one of the poachers. And to cut a long story short, I was framed by the police, the courts, and the judge, the judge, the, and the, and the poacher in an ugly conspiracy and convicted of drowning that poacher. And unbelievably, my co-accused only got a $10 fine and was set free because I was driving the boat. And that, that put me into, uh, at that time, the country was really battling because I got convicted in April 2003, the 3rd of April 2003. Um, the country was battling. There was no money for the prisons. So my first day in prison, I want you to try and picture it. We were 78 people in a cell 13 meters by 3 meters. Um, each person had 33 centimeters of space. That's like about 14 inches marked out on the walls in chalk. And we were all packed like sardines and all faced the same direction. When you turned over, you all turned over together. And as cushioning against the cold concrete floor, you'd fold two of your paper-thin, worn-out, lice-ridden blankets several times to fit your space, then covered yourself with a third one. Your clothes were wrapped around your toothbrush and toothpaste, or they'd get stolen, and that was your pillow. And from sleeping on those freezing hard floors, my hips had bruised black rings for years, and shoulders still get trouble today. But what I want to do say to you as well, Chapin, is that in all the prisons in Zimbabwe, there are no, there's no furniture whatsoever. There's no beds, tables, chairs, cupboards, nothing. It's just rows of filthy folded blankets and worn out water bottles everywhere and on bare concrete floors. The other thing, one of the hardest things to deal with were the lice that never went away, ever. They would crawl and bite day and night, leaving itchy, weeping blisters. And because they never stopped, they were draining, both mentally and physically. And there's nothing you can do about it. And then we only were ever allowed one set of clothing at any one time. After six months, you got a change of clothing, sometimes. Other times, after nine months, leaving you walking around in tatters. I just want you to, to think about... Okay, let me, let me go on to, there were no basins or taps in the cells and only one set of clothing. So you had to wash our clothes in the cell toilets at night wearing a blanket, then hang them on the walls with smuggled book staples to dry by the next morning. Now, just think about having to wear the clothes you're wearing now for six months without a change. Then, in order to retain your dignity, having to wash them in a well-used toilet. Even if it was your sparkling clean, clean toilet at home, then having to wear them the very next day. The humiliation was beyond comprehension. And then in 2005, during the Zim dollar crash, Harari City ran out of water. And for three years, while in Chikaribi Maximum Security Prison, each prisoner was allocated only one plastic cup of water a day. One cup of dirty orange city runoff water from a nearby dam that was to drink, 
clean your teeth, wash your face, bath, everything for three years. And then some of the other difficult parts in there were, well, let me, let me just get to what it's like when you get imprisoned and you're innocent. Um, the first thing that goes through your mind is, why me? What have I ever done to deserve this? And then it gets to, maybe I'm being protected in here. You know, there's a whole lot of things going through your head. And then, then I, I started believing that I've been put here for a reason. Because, uh, for the first, there's no other, there's no other way to get through it, Chapin. It's the only way mentally to get through something like that. And the, the biggest lesson I learned in prison was true forgiveness. And the humiliation of being labeled a murderer and terrible conditions were extremely hard to deal with. As was the pain of my bitterness, anger, hatred, frustration, revenge. I hated them bitterly and initially would lie there for hours, wishing every terrible thing on each of them in turn. The poacher, the police, the judge, the ministry, and all who were involved in my conviction. But then one day, I was struck by the realization that they'd all forgotten about me long ago. Here I was, consumed by the unfairness of it all, and they, blissfully unaware of the evil I wished on them every day. In the end, I was only hurting myself. I was carrying all that in my head and beating myself up for nothing. The single biggest lesson I learned in prison was true forgiveness. And it, to me, it's bigger than anything we can achieve on our own. True forgiveness is inspired by God Almighty, and so is letting go. And it was a huge weight off my shoulders. And and I learned to live in the moment from then on. The past was too painful, and the future full of unkept promises. So I just dealt with each day as it was, because no amount of worrying was going to change what I was going through. And I believe that if you have anger or resentment towards anyone in any way, it will eventually destroy you. Because that is what those emotions do. They steal from you. They steal happiness and freedom. And a lot of people say to me, how did, how did it come about? How did it, how did you just suddenly forgive? It, it's not, it's not, nothing that you can ever explain. It's just one day I just said to myself, after all this anger and hatred and everything, I just thought, just, just let me, let God take care of them. And it was, it's just like a switch. It just one day I just let go and I never thought about them again. And people say to me, but they've taken 10 years from you. They've taken your, all your companies, everything. You've got nothing left. Don't you hate them? Everything. And, and my, my answer to that, Chapin, is that I don't give them one second more thought. They've taken 10 years. They've taken watching my children grow up. They've taken everything from me. They're not taking another second of my thought. That's all behind me now. All I see in front of me is happiness, love, and fun. And when I, when I look at, at how much they took from my children, for example, and my son was 18 and we used to discuss and dream about making millions and plan endless projects and adventures. And, and my daughter, uh, we, we have an, an extraordinarily beautiful bond. And since a baby, she's always been my shadow. And as special as she is to me, I am to her. But at 16, I was her anchor. I was everything in her eyes. She confided in me without boundaries and clung to everything I said and did. And I loved them beyond expression. And they, they loved me. And the times they needed me most, I wasn't there. They went through first loves, crushes, dances, 21st birthdays, and entered the wide world, and I wasn't there to see it. And I don't want anyone ever to have to feel that way. Just just make enough time for your loved ones. Wow. Um, if there's any anything you want to ask me, but I, otherwise I'll just carry on. <laughs> I do have a few things I just want to go back and, and kind of clarify for myself. I mean, uh, quite a few. So just going back to it when the – the gentleman, did the gentleman actually drown and die? No, no one drowned. The guy's living in Zambia now, remarried with two kids in that whole area. It's a well-known fact. I, 
I spent $42,000 US dollars trying to find him. And then I thought, it's like a needle in a haystack. As soon as it's a very, very remote area. So as soon as any foreign person goes in there, because I used uh, uh, private investigators to do it, and they just came back. They were there for a year. And they came back and said they, they got affidavits from guys that had been with him. And no one was interested in that. They wanted him. Wow. And I just, they're taking more and more from me. Just let it go. Put it behind me. And something else while I'm on there and I'm thinking about it, Chapman, is, is how you, you know, people say to me, did you ever see a counselor when you came out? And I said to them, what counselor has ever been where I've been? No one can ever teach me how to get through that. And, and the way I did it was there's no interference in there. So there's nothing distracting your, your feelings from your physical freedom, feelings from your, from your thoughts. There's, there's a direct link between your thoughts and the physical, your physical feeling in your stomach. So when I thought about my fiance with another man, for example, it hurt me in my stomach. Or my friends having fun in Las Vegas where we used to go every year. It hurt me. So I counseled myself not to think about those things. And I had this fantasy girlfriend called Cherie, and we used to fly all over the world and catch Marlin in Mexico, and everything felt fantastic. And that's where I lived. I lived in this fantasy world. And it was all beautiful, but you have to. It's the only way to get through that. That's interesting because I'd like to touch upon that. You know, when you found true forgiveness and you talk about the mental emotional connection um have you ever read the book the power of now no have you no. Heard, have you heard of it i have i have but i just haven't got around to reading it okay well i've read it quite a few times and I've found tremendously interesting points that i can relate to and it sounds very relevant to what you describe where being in a prison mm-hmm. you have as Eckhart Tolle in the book says in every situation you find yourself in you have three choices you can either accept it for what it is, mm-hmm. you can somehow try to change the situation you're in directly, yeah. or you can walk away from it. And under the circumstances that you were in, you had only one option, which was to accept yeah. the circumstances that you found yourself in and find another way to free yourself from those circumstances, which was not allowing your mind to go into those dark places and realizing that your mind is creating this illusion of sorts. And uh, can you talk more about that? Because this actually really fascinates me. You know, that that kind of lightning bolt moment that you had, it sounded like, where you just kind of realized and had everything drip away from you. Like, I really like to get into that, if you don't mind. No, no, I I love that part of it. Um, You want me to try and explain what what triggered me to, to that decision? That and the feeling that corresponds with it, because I think, and I'm no expert on this, I practice what this book talks about every day, the power now keeping my present consciousness present in the moment and not allowing the past or the future to um, Mm -hmm. corrupt my internal environment. But I feel like it's more of a feeling than a thought. It's more of an overall feeling that people need to understand rather than trying to think their way out of a situation. And I think you have a great story in that you realize you couldn't necessarily just think your way out of it. You had to accept it. This is where you were going to be for the next 10 years of your life. And you found somehow peace and salvation in that. Is that correct? Yeah. You, you get into like a survival mode because you have no control of of anything in there. They control what you read, write, eat, drink, say, hear, everything's controlled. So you have no control. You have to accept what is there? And, and when I say you go into survival mode, you know we we've survived some um, some amazing things. Some guys have been on shipwrecks for forty eight days and bobbed in the ocean for three days. So the human being can withstand a lot as long as you've got a place to lie down, air to breathe, and something to drink. And when you're in there, you get to that situation where you, you as long as you're breathing and you're okay, then I mean everything. Everything else doesn't even matter. Doesn't doesn't come into your into your mind at all. It's getting through every day, and I carry that with me now. You know, I I don't let things get me down. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like I don't lower myself to be affected by the things that that uh, don't really matter. 
And I think that's the easiest way of putting that. I see. So maybe when, you know, you wake up and something doesn't go your way throughout the day, um, you don't even allow your mind and emotions to identify with that thing that came unexpectedly and allow yourself to become affected by it. Is that correct? Absolutely. If there's ups and downs in life and if, and if one day is not so good, well, that's one of the bad days. It's not a big thing. Mm-hmm. If every day was wonderful, it, it, it wouldn't be fun anymore. And, and I always believed that and it helped me get through as well, get through that. The Chapman is, his life is full of balance. So if there was too much rain, everything would flood. And if it was, there was no rain, everything would dry up and shrivel away. So I also believe that if I had to go through all of that horror, then there's got to be great things coming out the other side. And you have to believe that. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> that balance that you're talking about is, is uh, an important part of getting through all that. When you had that moment in prison, was there any moments that came after that you can say were joyful? Did you ever experience any moment of joy after after that in prison? Jacob, when you're when you're in there, um, you have to find even the smallest things that make that make you happy. What were, what were they for you? Just fooling around, you know, just just practical jokes and laughing, and you had to you had to find happiness in even the smallest things that happen in prison, and that's what kept kept us healthy. In the first six years. Chapin, I watched over 2,200 guys die primarily from malnutrition and disease. That's only in the prisons I was in because there was no food. There was no food outside of prison, never mind in prison. So there were people dying everywhere. <clears throat> One day uh, we were playing cards with a friend of mine on a tarred floor of the exercise yard, and there were about 800 people in the exercise yard. It was really crowded. and. A guy sitting next to me rolled over dead. We just turned a little so we couldn't see him until prisoner hospital staff collected him. That's how terrible it was in there. There were people dying everywhere, and you could smell dead people continuously, day and night. But that incident has always left me wondering why that guy died and I didn't. Why so many people lost their lives and I had the privilege of living. And I'll never really know why, but it's made me humble and appreciate every little thing about my life. And there are, there are things we have all in some way become desensitized to things in our community at one time or another. And I believe it's a surviving mechanism. But it also reduces compassion and humanity. And it's a fine line to tread when pushed so deeply. But if you've lost the ability to empathize, then you've lost what it means to be human. It, it was hell in there. To get through that was, you know, it's hard to explain it on on audio, but the way we lived in there was was horrific. You see guys in the shower that looked like like the German concentration camps in the Second World War. It was just the same. There was skin and bone. There was no food. It was unbelievable. Wow. And were mm. you in there with um, a comparable amount of different ethnicities? Or were you a standout because you were one of the only white men in there? Um, we were 2,200 guys in Chikaruby Maximum Security Prison. We three three white guys, and the rest were black guys. And the one white guy died in 2007, so only two of us made it through there. And then there were some mercenaries from South Africa, but they were in the foreign section. And <clears throat> because of because of my color or our color, and being um, a high-profile prisoner from from who I was and, and, and my case, um, I, I got a lot of privileges compared to the other guys. And those were, um, if I had issues or problems, I could ask to see the officer in charge, and because I had a lawyer and an advocate, I would get to see him. But guy, other guys who, who would ask, they would just be shrubbed off. So, in, I didn't uh, have privileges in, in the way we stayed and everything, but if I had a, issues and I raised them, they were addressed. Interesting. And that's primarily because you had a little bit of financial means outside of prison that could continue to fight for you while you were inside? Yeah. That, that, uh, that and, you know, something that's interesting is um, 
during the um, the uh, colonialization of of Rhodesia in those days, um, which was done by the British mainly, the British were very honest with the with the the local, with the tribes back then. So there was always an honesty and, and a respect between the whites and the blacks. Um, the war wasn't to do with uh, racial tension. The war was to do with um, the power struggles and who could, you know, who could uh, lead the country. But that respect for each other, I went in there. Uh, I still got treated like like I was um, like an owner of a company, and so that that respect remained there all the time. And and for that. We're very, very lucky in Zimbabwe. We have peace-loving people, and I think that's what separates us from many, many other countries in, in Africa. Interesting. What kind yeah. of um, sicknesses did you endure throughout your 10 years in prison? I mean, did you come very close to death ever due to the dysentery that you got or anything like that? I got, uh, I got poisoned in 2011. Apart from that, I'll get to that now, I, I just suffered a lot of allergy problems and they weren't really addressed well in prison. So I regularly got chest infections and stuff, but the the um, TB was was rife in prison. There were thousands of guys that, that got TB in, in the time I was in prison. And then, of course, HIV was quite, quite rife as well, so a lot of guys died from that, especially when times were tough and there was no food, etc. Um, but apart from that, I didn't uh, have any normal, you know, just flu and stuff like that that everyone gets. But I just made, you know, when you have, uh, you, you realize in there that the most important things in life can't be bought. And that's your health, your loved ones, and your friends. When you go to prison, you walk in stark naked. They strip you naked and you walk into that prison with no clothes on. They give you clothes inside there. And when I say walk in, you walk in the main gates straight in amongst a thousand people and you put clothes on in front of them. Then getting back to that being poisoned, I, uh, I became very close to like some of the officer charges and, and stuff, the higher, higher up. And the guards are very, very good to me. Eh? And there was in 2010. So I went in in 2003. In 2010, when I was in a medium security prison, um, we had a huge cholera outbreak there. And just to get on the death rates back to that, in eight months, uh, in 2008 and nine, during the cholera outbreak at Arari Central Prison, out of 1,200 of us prisoners, 432 died in eight months. It's more than one third of us. It was unbelievable. That's when that guy sitting next to me rolled over dead. Um, yeah, but, but after that, uh, in March 2009, Red Cross took over feeding. Before that, Red Cross or any human rights people were never allowed anywhere near our prison. And then the death rate was so hectic and, and it became more and more public. So they started allowing Red Cross to feed us. And March, March 2009, they started and the death rate dried up within weeks. People stopped dying. And then uh, about a month, a year later, in 2010, um, the Minister of Health came to the prison. And the officer in charge and I were good mates. And we were about the same age. And it was very, very hard to see him. You know, it's like seeing like the manager of a huge company. But I always had access to him through the pecking order in prison that, that – uh, um, that I told you about earlier. Yeah. And he came to me in the court, in the yard, in the exercise yard, and he said, Russ, I want you to do it. The Minister of Health is coming tomorrow, and I want you to do a talk for me. So I said, well, can I tell him everything? And he said, yeah, you can tell him everything. And I did. I told him I had all the death rates in my head, washing, you know, we had to wash our clothes in the toilets, um, the, the broken gutters, the food. The lice. I told him everything, and afterwards he thanked me very much, and he asked me for my piece of paper that I was reading from. And then about ten days later, 
about 12 senators came to the prison. And the officer in charge briefed me before, and I, and I gave them a talk as well. And they were not very impressed with me and asked me for my paper as well. And not long after that, I was transferred to a farm prison. So I was eight years in, in a closed prison, which is high security. One was medium security, and then five and a half years was in maximum security. But the farm prison that I went to is, is run on trust completely. So there's no fences or bars or anything. It's all on trust. And it was like heaven. We had our own beds. It's the only prison in Zimbabwe that has beds, but uh, it, it's not really a prison. It's just a farm that's run by prisoners. Mm-hmm. And and uh, about two months after I was there, I I had guys that I looked after. So we used to eat together and and do things together. And some they were cooking because at that prison we were allowed to receive food from our from our families, and we had a fridge there. So we kept the food in the fridge, and they would cook for me. And one evening I was lying there and, and suddenly I felt my hands going all tingly and juices running into my mouth. It was about five minutes after I'd eaten and I knew immediately that I'd been poisoned. To get a long story short, I ended up in intensive care for seven weeks in Harare. And it's the closest I've ever been to dying. I was finished. And I, uh, they never found out what it was. They, they tested me for typhoid, for botulism, everything, HIV. It went on and on. I had 14 vials of blood, uh, stool and urine samples, everything. And the only thing they came up with was that my e-hemoglobin count, which is like your antibodies fighting any foreign uh, matter that comes into your body. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the army in you. Your normal count is supposed to be 0 to 100, and mine was 5,000. So they said if you weren't in the condition you're in, you would never. And um, I, I never gained my physical condition again to where I was then. And you know, I'm a fitness freak, so I train all the time. But I, I've never get, got back to that level. And since then, I've been asthmatic as well. So it did hammer me quite hard. So do and you? I, I, do you think there's any correlation then between the senators who are not very happy with you and you getting poisoned? That's the only thing I can put it to. There's no other reason why anything would happen like that to me. And and, and the reasoning being that they didn't want you to get out and tell your story kind of thing? That's exactly – that's the only conclusion I can put to it. There's nothing else. Interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. that's wild. It was terrifying, yeah. What's, so, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that uh, me telling my story is also quite a risk for me. But there were a lot of uh, very high politicians and, and senior guys in government that were very anti-me being um, con- incarcerated. And they tried to help me get out as well. And it, it caused a lot of trouble for a lot of people. Is there a lot of violence yeah. in those prisons? Yeah, there's a lot of fighting. We don't have um, that many stabbings. And, and the, the guards have got a lot more control than they do in America. So you do have rapes in there, you have a lot you know, fighting and stabbings now and again. But it's it's pretty much controlled. I the, see. the guys are not you know, they they are unruly bunch some of the guys very unruly, but generally they they they're controllable. <laughs> Interesting. So then yeah. you, what year did you get out? In two thousand and thirteen, April the third, two thirteen. What was the first thing you did when you got out? Really want me to tell you? Yeah, tell me, please. <laughs> no, I had a barbecue with a whole bunch of mates, about a hundred guys, and it was just fantastic at my house. It was beautiful. Eh? Oh, that's wonderful. So, throughout yeah. your being incarcerated, your family was able to maintain your businesses for you. No, my business went broke in two thousand and ten, so I still have my properties, but I was lost. Uh, I was left a lot of debt, and uh, all the companies went broke. So uh, this is my income now. <laughs> and you are a professional speaker now traveling the world or just throughout Zimbabwe? I've been invited to travel to, to speak all over the world, but I'm battling with visas. I'm working really hard now on a visa to America, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get it. So 
I hope to visit you there. That would be amazing. Now, why would you be battling with visas? Is it because they don't want you to get out of Zimbabwe to tell your story? No, it's because America turned me down. The The American embassy in Harare recommended a waiver for me because with my criminal record, I don't automatically qualify, mm-hmm. which to me is total discrimination. You know, I thought that if you had served your sentence, you're supposed to be rehabilitated and normal, mm-hmm. that obviously there's discrimination on that. Um, so they recommended they, – they took my transcript and read through it and then recommended a waiver, but the home security in America rejected it. Hmm. So, And then I had lawyers in New York followed up, and they said that they have to go by the court ruling, and, you know, if you're a dangerous – if you're convicted of a dangerous crime like that, uh, they won't accept you. Hmm. So, yeah, it was total discrimination in, in that side. but. I'm hopeful I'm going to get it. Um, I've been told that I've got a good chance of getting a visa. So That's great. You'll hear, yeah, you'll be hearing from me. <laughs> I'm excited to be one of the first to get your story outside of uh, Zimbabwe. <laughs> That'll be great. I've, I've been invited to talk to some, some big places. So it's very exciting. That is exciting. So as of today, as of now, you are on a, a circuit that you get paid to speak. Is that correct? And do you have any That's other correct. income sources coming in? I, I've i got field guard training courses that I do with a, a friend of mine that I've known for about 40 years, Andy Connolly. He owns a place called Antelope Park in Zimbabwe. And there's a field guard training courses called FUGAZA, Field Guards Association of Southern Africa. And I'm an assessor, which is like an examiner. So... I take people on field guide training courses for 50 days and then put them through um, some examinations and they end up with a certificate that forgot level one, level two and level three. Mm-hmm. And that's going really well. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm a farm boy by heart and nature's in my blood. So I'm loving that. So that's another side of, of my business that I do. Uh, and you are a professional hunter as well. Is that correct? Yeah, professional hunter and professional guard, yeah. Um, do you hunt for your food? Is that how you're putting meat on the table or is that still just kind of for fun sport? No. You know, when we when I left school, uh, let me go back to when I grew up. Um, I'm a farm boy and we grew up, you know, fishing and hunting. And when we say hunting, just shooting impala, for ration meat, we were allowed to shoot two impala a week to, to for ration meat for the for the labor on the farm. And then, if we saw a kudubu, for example, it was big news. For you know, you got home that night and you told everyone, "Wow, I saw a kudubu today." And then the war came, and the wildlife got hammered and hammered more and more. Um, remember in those in the old days when when they settled Rhodesia, they cattle was money. Not game. So the game, there was no value in animals. So you could go out to a farmer's, you know, to, to, to a farmer's place and if you wanted to shoot, uh, a kudu bull or, or an eland or something, you'd shoot one and he'd say, uh, drop a hind quarter for me. And there was no value in it. It was just, it was just something that was eating the grass and, and the grass is for the cattle. Mm. And then after the war, um, a group of us started uh, realized the value of professional hunting where people would come out and pay money to shoot the animals and we'd give the, money, the meat to the farmers as well. So we started a campaign educating farmers on the value of wildlife. And we said to them, you know, there were people that were shooting sable antelope for ration meat, for example. And every, every large cattle ranching and, and private cattle ranch Gave bonuses for people that trapped leopard because they were vermin. They, they, anything that killed cattle, they, you could destroy them. And then we said, no, 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 we'll pay you for them. And then we'll, we'll give you the meat. Obviously not for the leopard, but, um, we said to them, as long as we can, we can control the offtake and how it's taken off. So we we didn't take anything out of breeding herds, uh, only old males, 
um, that weren't the, the past their prime. No females were taken at all of any species. And then any money that went back to the farm for the wildlife, we made them start anti-poaching units, which weren't heard of back, you know, when I grew up. And then feeding game during droughts, reintroducing the game that had been shot out. And the game suddenly became so valuable that hundreds and hundreds of farmers went out of cattle farming into game farming. And by 2000, there was more wildlife in Zimbabwe than there's ever been from hunting. And uh, then the land invasions came, and, and that was the end of the wildlife. It's been hammered badly. Interesting. So, yeah, you're you're very a conservationist. Cons- yeah. <laughs> and very, My whole life. I see. That's interesting. Yeah. And so how come you haven't just jumped back in that game then, as far as um, having, like, uh, people come and, and utilize your land for, for hunting? Well, I don't have any land left. Um for the hunting side and, and also I'm over it, you know, it's not the same. It's not. And one of the things that destroyed it a lot, Chapin, you, you won't really understand it, but is, you know, in the old days around, when you're sitting around a campfire, it was the humor of being there out in the wild in the bush and the camaraderie that came with all the stories around the fire and everything. And you go there now and everyone is sitting on their cell phones and there's Wi-Fi and they're, sending pictures to here and there and it's not it's all about about technology now it's not about the old raw feeling we used to get and mm-hmm. it's just it's, it's all been lost it's so sad and, and i just don't want to be part of that anymore I and see. then now i've been in it for 30 years since 1980 so i'm over it you know i've done it i was i had all the wonderful times when everything was great and i built it all up fantastic and now it's been destroyed and it just hurts too much and and also i've been in isolation for so long and then when you go in the bush it's sort of back to isolation and i i'm just feeling great meeting so many new people and making such a difference and and that's really what this is not all about making money for me it's about changing lives and making a difference and it's and it's really helping so many people eh? yeah it sure is man do you find it hard to relate to people now that you're out of prison, do you have that sort of um, um, that repatriation syndrome that a lot of like expatriates get when they come back to their home country after being away for so long? They just don't really kind of connect with society anymore. Or do you have that feeling ever? No, I've never had that problem, but I, I fit in with everyone. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's good for you. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, but that's something that I realized, uh, Chapin, is that. We create our own prisons in life. And, and I see it so clearly when, when I look at bad, uh, badly selected careers, unhappy marriages, um, bad partnerships, and people being obsessed with the ambition in the corporate world. I mean, people are stuck in there in ruts in, and I just, they're in their own prisons and they're not, they're not even in prison. And it's so sad when I see it all, you know. And, and I just said to my daughter and my son, just make sure when you get married, I'm going to be a granddad on Monday, by the way. Um, don't put yourself in prison. Make sure you know what you're doing. And even in, in your career, make sure you do something you like, you enjoy. Don't, don't have regrets when it's too late and you can't get out. You know? Yeah. Congratulations, by the way, on your uh, grandchild yeah. on the way. That's awesome. I have a little niece that I love spending time with. It's awesome. Beautiful. Um, I just have a few more questions. Can you just take me through like a normal day for you? Like what do you do on a normal day um, right now, today? Like, for example, what did you do? And what, what, what brings you pleasure on a normal day? Okay. I, I'm working with people at the moment, Kevin, on, on interventions where we look at companies and what's troubling the company and ways that I can change that with what I went through. And, we, and write speeches that that uh, that address those issues, and it's just so challenging. You know, every company's got different issues and different directions that are not looking good. And then we try and I, I try and create a speech um, relating to what I went through and how I got through it, and how that can can change the way uh, their futures can turn out. You know. That's really interesting. 
So were you, yeah. did you come up with that idea or did someone approach you with that concept? Um, I'm working with, with a, with a, an agent here called Unique Speaker Bureau. And there are only about, there are only 35 of us speakers. They've interviewed over a thousand people in the last three years and they took on three. So I'm very, very privileged to be part of Unique Speaker Bureau. And uh, one of the co-owners is a guy called Michael Jackson. And he's known as the other Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he's a legend. He's done over 2,600 uh, keynote speeches around the world. And he's really, really taken a fascination to me. And he's my mentor. I just, uh, I just worship the guy. And he's working with me and a, and a lady called Bev Hancock, who's also got an amazing mind. And, and the three of us are working on these speeches to create for this, these interventions. And uh, I'm loving it. Eh? So that's what I do uh, during my day. So my voice is a bit tired from from talking, speaking to myself in my my stupid computer. <laughs> <laughs> you have a beautiful voice, my man. That accent, I'm sure, melts a lot of women's hearts here in America when they hear it. Um, <laughs> one more question. Like, do you have any place that people can find you online? Do you have a website of your own that you would like to kind of give a shout out to so people can come hear more about you and your story? Sure. Um my my website is called Living in Chains, um, and then you can, I've got some YouTube clips out. Now, I've only been talking since April last year, and I, and I only signed up with Unique Speaker Bureau uh, two months ago. So I've got another um, filmed or um, videoed speech coming up on Monday that'll be on YouTube as well. That, but the YouTube clips at the moment they're only five minutes long. I'll they'll be There'll be longer ones coming out. So you can find me on, on the website at Living in Chains and my name, Rusty Lebuskachny. Right. And then on Facebook as well. I'm on Facebook and that'll be my name under my name. Cool. I will put all these yeah. uh, links up in the show notes so it's it's easy for people to find you. And I hope this brings yeah. you more speaking engagements, my man. It's been such a pleasure having you, Rusty. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate you, my man. Thank you, Jeff, and it's been wonderful meeting you and chatting, but thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode with Rusty Labuschagne. What a cool guy. What a cool story. What a cool outlook on life, the world, and how he's getting through it now. I mean, that guy, you can just hear it, his energy in his voice. He's just enthusiastic about life and the possibilities that he now has. At the same time, the peace he did find. You know, I think he probably, once he discovered that quiet peaceful place within himself there were moments even in that shithole where he could find a little bit of enthusiasm about being alive so thank you again for listening and please follow me on instagram you know i'll be posting a lot more over the next months with my travels to charleston south carolina you know riding my bicycle with my father and then landing in thailand and really trying to give this whole digital nomadry a go so i'll be posting a lot more follow me at misfits and rejects on Instagram. If you like Misfits and Rejects and you want to donate monetarily to Misfits and Rejects, you can do it on Patreon. Patreon is a platform for content creators like myself and their fans, for the fans to support them. So you can donate whatever you want, a dollar, three dollars, five dollars, whatever you want a month. It's always appreciated, but not expected. You know, take out your phone right now, subscribe to Misfits and Rejects, make a comment. That's hugely helpful. And I appreciate the heck out of that as well. And then reach out to me if you have a story or if you know somebody who has a story. You know, Rusty was somebody I got connected to via fan of Misfits and Rejects. So I'd love to hear more stories. Um, always waiting to get new content. I'm always waiting to meet new people. But sometimes, you know, people reach out to me and we make a connection. They have a cool story and they can come on the show. I'm always happy to hear somebody's story and, and see if it's a good fit for Misfits and Rejects. So you can always reach out to me. Um, at Chapin at MisfitsAndRejects.com. That's Chapin at MisfitsAndRejects.com. And until next time, I think you all are so very beautiful. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but 
when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.